on today's New York Public Library podcast. Accomplished musician and author James McBride explores his latest work, The Good Lord Bird, winner of the 2013 National Book Award through both words and music. McBride is joined in conversation by Paul Holdengraber, director of Live from the NYPF. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. So bad. I feel so funny. I feel so sad. Um, thank you very much. It's uh, so nice to see so many white, I mean, nice people here. They're all very <laughs> um, Yeah, I, um, um, for those of you who saw the uh, National Book Award, you realize that uh, if you didn't see it, when I, when I won, I didn't have a speech prepared. Um, and I still didn't, don't have one prepared, actually. But um, uh, I walk up here chewing gum, which is like it was a mistake. Um, you know, my mother used to say, if you chew gum and swallow it, your behind will close up. So you've never seen me swallow. You've never seen me or any of my brothers and sisters ever swallow anybody's gum ever. <clears throat> but it's really nice to be here. It's, it's a pleasure. And... Um, um, very delighted to, to see Paul again. He's a, he's a unique New York institution. And uh, this, uh, this uh, reading series is a unique New York thing, and I'm very, very proud and delighted to be part of it. Um, I, um, um, I, I, uh, I've, I've written a new book, um, and it's called, uh, it's called, this is what it's called, you know. Um, what happened was, um, well, first, just to back up a few, for those of you, for the, like the three of you who, who haven't read The Color of Water, my mother died in January of, 19, of 2010, and um, uh, she was 88, and I was talking to Paul, who lost his mother um, just eight weeks ago today, and we were talking about what that means, and, um, and what happens, I think, is it there's a, there's a, in addition to the mourning process, there's, a, there's also a new kind of growth that takes place if the mother or the father or the, you know, the parent person does the job. And um, I'm so happy that Paul's mother did the job because it, he says he wants to work more and he wants to work harder. He wants to do more. He wants the series to grow. He wants to find new writers. He wants to present. And, uh, and that meant that someone did the job. And in my case, my mother did the job as well. I wish that she were here to see this because she really loved libraries. And she loved the New York Public Library. In fact, we owe this institution quite a bit of money. Um, but um, <laughs> we ain't going to talk about that. But in any case, um, I, um, I, uh, I was fooling around with my, with my, um, with my previous novel uh, called Song Yet, Yet Sung. Um, Eight people read it, um, and I have 11 brothers and sisters, so that shows you that, you know. <laughs> um, in any case, I was in, uh, I was in Maryland, and I was at a, 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 um, a, uh, one of these uh, historical societies, and I was reading the diary of a, of a Jewish merchant on the eastern shore, uh, on Maryland's eastern shore, and of which there were probably eight, you know, in, in between 1900 and 19. 40 or something like that. And anyway, this guy was an interesting guy, and, every, and he wrote in his, 
Every day he kept a diary of everything that happened. And, and he, every time he would, he would write like such and so, like, you know, Dorothy came by and brought a pound of salt and her, the daughter has the, you know, uh, has some kind of fever and so it goes. And then the next day he'd say, you know, Mr. Johnson came by and brought, you know, two packs of flour and some meat for his, uh, you know, and got his horseshoe, horse clod, you know, and so it goes. And then I turned the page and he said, John Brown raided Harper's Ferry. And there was a long list of stuff at the end. And so it goes. I was like, wow. And I was only about an hour from Harper's Ferry. So I said, well, I'm going to take a ride. You know, I, I just took a ride down to Harper's Ferry, which is in what is now West Virginia. And I became fascinated with the story of John Brown. And John Brown's story, in brief, and this is not the historian version of it. So the historians amongst you, please, you know, you know, just take your foot off the gas, you know, smoke a little, whatever it is that you need to. Um, but essentially what happened was John Brown was an abolitionist who decided slavery was wrong. And uh, he was from the Northeast. He was, a, you know, he was a Yankee. And he ended up going to Kansas to, um, to fight the, the pro-slavery movement, which had kind of started in Missouri. Basically what happened after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act was passed Slavery became a really hot issue, and a lot of white people started to have a lot of issues with it as well. Some of these issues were based in race, and some were just based on the fact that this thing was so troublesome that it just wasn't working. Um, he went out there to help his sons, who sent, who sent a letter back to him saying, please, br- come out here and bring some guns, because the pro-slavers had been... Mar- Kansas territory had been established, but slavery had not been established in Kansas territory, so there was a fight between the pro-slavers from Missouri territory who wanted slavery to continue and the free staters, so-called free staters in Kansas who wanted slavery to, to, to end, who were against slavery and who wanted Kansas to be a free state. John Brown, John Brown went out there to help defend his sons and immediately fell into the abolitionist movement. Not fell, walked into the abolitionist movement at the age of 56, which in those days was pretty old. Um, I'm 56, so I don't want to hear, you know. I remember when I was doing readings for The Color of Water, I used to say, you know, I'd say, oh, I'm just going to, you know, do readings for some, you know, young Jewish women aged 18 to 80, you know. And, uh, and this is what happens when, you, you know, you've, when you've had, I'll put it this way, you haven't lived until you've done like 10 or 15 coffee clatches in Teaneck, New Jersey. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I say this with all gratefulness because these women made me rich, you know. They bought my book, you know, they, so. But they would say, let's check his teeth. Look at it. Okay, wait a minute. But in any case, um, how did I get to that? I can't remember. John Brown went to Kansas to fight this war against, against slavery. And when he got out there, um, see, the Yankees were getting beat up every which way. And, uh, and so when John Brown arrived... Um, he did something that the pro-slavers were a little bit surprised about, that he actually fought back. He was a profoundly, deeply religious man. And so this book is actually the memoir of a 104-year-old black man who's telling his story to a fellow Sunday school teacher at, at, a, at a Baptist church in Wilmington, Delaware. So what happens at the beginning of this book, there's a fire, the, the church burns down, they find these papers, and they go through these papers, and they find this whopper of a story. And this story is told in, by this 104-year-old man whose name is Henry the Onion Shackleford. And he's nicknamed the Onion by John Brown. And what happens in this book is Henry the Onion Shackleford, or Onion, is telling the story about how when he was a little boy, 
as a slave working in uh, this, by the way, this book, book, book begins in 1966. So the guy who's telling it, you know, that's why he's 104 years old. The book begins when Henry's talking about when he was working in, his, his, in a tavern with his father who was a slave in Kansas. So John Brown walks into the tavern and, um, and basically this is what happens. This is from um, page one, chapter one. I was born a colored man and don't you forget it, but I lived as a colored woman for 17 years. My pa was a full-blooded Negro out of Osawatomi in Kansas Territory, north of Fort Scott, near Lawrence. Pa was a barber by trade, though they'd never give him full satisfaction. Preaching the gospel was his main line. Pa didn't have a regular church, like the type that don't allow nothing but bingo on Wednesday nights and women sitting around making paper doll cutouts. He saved souls one at a time, cutting hair at Dutch Henry's Tavern, which was tucked at a crossing on the California Trail that runs along the Kaw River in South Kansas Territory. <clears throat> pa ministered most of the lowlifes, four flushes, slaveholders, and drunks who came along the Kansas Trail. He weren't a big man in size, but he dressed big. He favored a top hat, pants that drawed up around his ankles, high collar shirts, and heeled boots. Most of his clothing was junk he found, or items he stole off, stole off dead white folks on the prairie, killed out from dropsy or aired out on account of some dispute or other. His shirt had bullet holes in it the size of quarters. His hat was two sizes too small. His trousers came from two different colored pairs sewn together in the middle where the arse met. His hair was nappy enough to strike a match on. Most women wouldn't go near him, including my ma, who closed her eyes in death, bringing me to this life. She was said to be a gentle, high yellow woman. Your, woman, your mama was the only woman in this world, man enough to hear my holy thoughts, Pa boasted, for I am a man of many parts. Whatever them parts was, they didn't add up to much, for all full up and dressed, up, dressed to the nines, complete with boots and three-inch top hat, Pa only come out to about four feet, inches, eight, eight inches tall, and quite a bit of that was air. But what he lacked in size, Pa made up for with his voice. My pa could out yell with his voice any white man who ever walked God's green earth, bar none. He had a high, thin voice. When he talked, it sounded like he had a Jew's harp stuck down his throat, for he spoke in pops and bangs and such, which meant speaking with him was a two-for-one deal, being that he cleaned your face and spit-washed it for you at the same time. <laughs> Make that three-for-one when you consider his breath. His breath smelled like hog guts and sawdust, for he worked in a slaughterhouse for many years, so most colored folks avoided him, generally. But white folks like my pa fine. Many a night I see my pa fill up on joy juice and leap atop the bar at Dutch Henry's, snipping his scissors and hollering through the smoke and gin. The Lord's coming. He's a coming to gnash out your teeth and tear out your hair, then fling himself into a crowd of the meanest, low-down, piss-drunk Missouri rebels you ever saw. And while they mostly clubbed him to the floor and kicked out his teeth, them white fellas didn't no more blame my pa for flinging himself at them in the name of the Holy Ghost than if a tornado was to come along and toss him across the room. For the spirit of the Redeemer who spilt his blood was serious business out on the prairie in them days, and your basic white pioneer weren't no stranger to the notion of hope. Most of them was fresh out of that commodity, having come west, west on a notion that hadn't drawn out, the, drawed up, worked out the way it was drawn up anyway, so anything that helped them out of bed to not kill Indians and not drop dead from egg and rattlesnakes was a welcome change. It helped, too, that Pa made some of the best rat gut in Kansas territory. Though he was a preacher, 
probably weren't against the taste of three. And like as not, the same gunslingers who tore out his hair and knocked him cold would pick him up afterward and say, let's liquor. And the whole bunch of them would wander off and howl at the moon, drinking Pa's giddy sauce. Pa was right proud of his friendship with the white race, something he claimed he learned from the Bible. Son, he'd always say, always remember the book of Hezekiah, 12th chapter, 17th verse. Hold out thy glass to thy thirsty neighbor, Captain Ahab, and let him drink it his full. I was a grown man before I knew there weren't no book of Hezekiah in the Bible. <laughs> Nor was there any Captain Ahab. The fact is, Pa couldn't read a lick and only recited Bible verses he'd heard white folks tell him. Now, Dutch Henry's tavern sat right near the Missouri border. It served as a kind of post office, courthouse, rumor mill, and gin house for Missouri rebels who come across the Kansas line to drink, throw cards, tell lies, frequent whores, and holler to the moon about Negroes taking over the world and the white man's constitutional rights being thrown in the outhouse by the Yankees and so forth. I paid no attention to that talk, for my aim in them days was to shine shoes when my pa cut hair and shove as much Johnny Cake and ale down my little red lane as possible. But come spring, talking Dutch is circled around a certain murderous white scoundrel named Old John Brown, a Yank from back east who come to Kansas Territory to stir up trouble with his gang of sons called the Potawatomi Rifles. To hear them tell it, Old John Brown and his murderous sons plan to deaden every man, woman, and child on the prairie. Old John Brown stole horses. Old John Brown burned homesteads. Old John Brown raped women and hacked off heads. Old John Brown done this, and Old John Brown done that. And by God, by the time they was done with him, Old John Brown sounded like the most onerous, murderous, low-down son of a bitch you ever saw. And I resolved that if I was ever to run across him, why, by God, I would do him in myself, just on account of what he'd done or was going to do to the good white people I knowed. Well, not long after I decided them proclamations, an old, tottering Irishman teetered into Dutch Henry's and sat in Pa's barber's chair. Wasn't nothing special about him. There was a hundred prospecting prairie bums winding around Kansas territory in them days, looking for a lift west or a job rustling cattle. This drummer weren't nothing special. He was a stoop, skinny fella, fresh off the prairie, smelling like buffalo dung, with a nervous twitch in his jaw and a chin full of ragged whiskers. His face had so many lines and wrinkles running between his mouth and his eyes that if you bundle them up, you could make him a canal. His thin lips was pulled back to a permanent frown. His coat, vest, pants, and string tie looked like mice had chewed on every corner of him. And his boots was altogether done in. His toes stuck clean through the toe points. He was a sorry-looking package altogether, even by prairie standards. But he was white. So when he sat in Pa's chair for a haircut and shave, Pa put a bib on him and went to work. As usual, Pa worked the top end and I'd done the bottom, shining his boots, which in this case was more toes than leather. After a few minutes, the Irishman glanced around and seeing as nobody was standing too close, said to Pa quietly, you a Bible man? Well, Pa was a lunatic when it came to God, and that perked him right up. He said, why, boss, I surely is. I know all kinds of Bible verses. The old coot smiled. I can't say it was a real smile, for his face weren't, was so stern, they weren't capable of smiling. But his lips kind of widened out. The mention of the Lord clearly pleased him, and it should have for he was running on the Lord's grace right then and there. For that was the murderer, old John Brown himself, the scourge of Kansas territory, sitting right there in Dutch's Tavern with a $1,500 reward on his head and half the population in Kansas territory aiming to put a charge in him.
one of the things that I really, were really, one of the things that really attracted me to John Brown was his, uh, his religion. Um, I grew up in the church, all of my, my brothers and sisters, we all grew up in the church. And um, we were, you know, we understand, or, or thought, at least we thought we did, understood or understand the power of, 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 of God. When I was a kid, um, my sister Judy used to play in church. And um, when she, I played in Sunday school, and Judy and my sister Helen played in church. And then when Judy wasn't, when, when Helen, my sister Helen retired from playing, she just, you couldn't make her do anymore. Judy was recruited. And every once in a while when Judy wasn't around, I would be pressed into service. And that was always a problem because of like, you know, I could play like, I could, I'm not really a piano player. I mean, I could play certain songs and, you know, you know, if you play something in the key of F, but, you know, people would, they would get up there and they'd start singing in the key of D flat, you know. And they'd sing the whole song, you know. And I'd say, please come back to F. And, you know, they, and then they witness and they'd sing the second verse that you know, nobody knew the words and they'd sing that. And then they, you know, and I'm saying, please, F, F. And, you know, um, the other thing was like the minister, you know, and when you play piano in church, you know, the minister, he has a thing, you know, he, he goes and then when he's finished, he kind of nods at the, you know, you're supposed to, you know. Pass the money in the basket right now. I mean, that's really what, so when he was, you know, when the minister would preach and, you know, the, you know he would nod and you were supposed to, you know, but see, he would start out like this. He, he's like a train. And then he'd get going. God, I know you don't. God, and then he, and then I'd be, I, I never knew when the, we played, you know, we played lots of uh, games with, uh, you know, like my brother Richie was a jazz, I used to, my brother Richie was uh, into jazz, and I got into jazz too, so I would take church songs like What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and I'd be talking about My mother, when she sees, she, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> but one of the things that, uh, that was really, really wonderful about growing up in church and understanding, having some understanding of the power of religion was that on Sunday morning, after it was over, you found, you'd found a place to lay your burden down. And that part of John Brown's life I really understood and related to, even though he was a little bit crazy. Um, so I brought some friends to, uh, to help me lay my burden down as I lay my story on you about John Brown. On bass and cello from uh, Ithaca, New York, Mr. Trevor Exter. Glory, glory, 
Hallelujah, since I laid my burden down. Glory, glory, hallelujah, since I laid my burden down. piano from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, fellow Oban Conservatory graduate, wonderful composer and arranger, also plays with Billy Paul of the Me and My, Me and Mrs. Jones fame, uh, Mr. Adam Falk. States from Trenton, New Jersey, <laughs> the deeply talented Showtime Brooks. Fire, plays with Vanessa Williams, plays with all kinds of people, but mostly plays with himself. I mean, no, he doesn't. Mr. Keith Robinson.
after John Brown makes his visit to Harper's Ferry <laughs> is that our, our protagonist finds himself kidnapped. The thing goes bad. John Brown pulls out his weapon and everyone pulls out their guns and John Brown grabs the kid and look, looks at this 10-year-old little boy and he thinks that the boy is a girl so he says, come on, Henrietta. And he just ends up the whole book. John Brown believes that Little Onion is a it's a girl. And Onion plays along with that because he figures this is a crazy white man. I'm not going to mess with him. He's nuts. So um, John Brown takes him off into the woods. And the little boy, his first introduction to John Brown is when, in the, when they're in the woods, they have to eat. And they, someone brings a, a pheasant. And the old man stands over the bird and he starts to pray. And this is Onion's witnessing John Brown, this religious zealot, witnessing praying for the first time. He said, I ought to give you a full sample of old John Brown's prayers, but I reckon they wouldn't make no sense to the dear reader who's no doubt sitting in a warm church basement a hundred years distant, reading these words, wearing Stacy Adams shoes and a fake fur coat, and not having to do more than waddle over to the wall and flick a button to warm his arse and heat his coffee. The old man's prayers was more sight than sound, really more sense than sensibility. You had to be there. The aroma of burnt bird rolling through the air, the wide Kansas prairie about, the smell of buffalo dung, the mosquitoes and wind eating at you one way and him chawing at the wind the other. He was a plain terror in the praying department. Just when he seemed to wrap up one thought, another come tumbling out and crashed up against the first. And then another crashed up against that one. And after a while, they all bumped and crashed and co-mingled and co-jangled against one another till you didn't know who was who and why he was praying it.
After, after Mr. John Brown takes this young boy off, this young boy disguised as a girl, off to, uh, to his adventures, they have all kinds of things that happen that are not good, but mostly what they're doing is they're trying to free the slaves and they're involved in this war against uh, the pro-slavers from Missouri. At a certain point, um, the kid gets cut off from, uh, from he gets separated from, uh, from John Brown, and he ends up uh, in a, uh, a house of ill repute something I've never actually personally experienced, just want you to know that. I mean, except for that one time. Remember, I don't, I don't want to talk about that, but anyway. <laughs> what you laughing at, Keith? You were there. No, anyway. <laughs> just kidding. Anyway, um, uh, he gets caught up at a, uh, at a, um, at a house of ill repute, and um, he's still posing as a girl. Uh, as a little, as a little, he looks like a little girl. Nobody really pays attention to a little black girl, you know, in those days because she was a slave. You know, was one black look like the next, and so forth. But she is working in the house. He, I'm sorry, Onion is working in the house, and Onion gets involved with and meets some outdoor slaves. Turns out that they're involved. These outdoor slaves were slaves who work out in the yard. They get involved in an insurrection, and the town finds out about it, and so they bring in the leader of this slave revolt, and her name is Sabonia. And this little boy witnesses what happens when Sabonia comes in, and the judge and all of the white folks of the town, the white men who run the town, they bring in Sabonia because they want to find out who else is involved in this insurrection. They know she's involved, and they know her sister's involved, but they don't know who else is involved, and they're really panicked about it because apparently there were lots of people involved. So they brought Sabonia in, and uh, she wouldn't tell them. They said, well, we're going to hang you. We're going to burn you. We're going to tear your arms out. 
you're going to tell us? And she said, no, we're not. You can, you can do whatever you want. String me up or you can pour tar down my throat. You will not get this information out of me. So they sent her back to jail and they sent for the local minister. They said, you know what? She likes him. She's religious and she likes him. We'll send him to the jailhouse and we'll have him talk to Sabonia and she'll tell him because she loves the minister. So they sent for the minister and the minister says, you're right, I'll go down there. He says, she'll talk to me. So he goes down to the jailhouse to see Sabonia. This is the minister. Then he comes back to the bar like four hours later and he's exhausted. And they, and they say, what happened? And he says, well, I'll tell you what happened. So he tells them what happened when he went down to the jailhouse to make Sabonia confess about her collaborate co-conspirators in this insurrection. He's talking to his fellow tavern goers. He said, I said, Sabonia, I've come to find out everything you know about this wicked insurrection. And she cut me off. She said, Reverend, you come for no such purpose. Maybe you was persuaded to come or forced to come. But would you, who taught me the word of Jesus, you, the man who taught me that Jesus suffered and died in truth, would you tell me to betray the confidence secretly entrusted to me? Would you, who taught me that Jesus' sacrifice was for me and me only, would you now ask me to forfeit the lives of others who would help me? Reverend, you know me. And the Reverend said, for the first time in my ministerial life, I I felt I had done a great sin. I could not proceed, he said. I accepted her rebuke. I recovered from my shock at length and said, but Sabonia, yours was a wicked plot. Had you succeeded, the streets would run red with blood. How could you plot to kill so many innocent people? To kill me and my wife? What have my wife and I done to you? And here Sabonia looked at me sternly and said, Reverend, it was you and your wife who taught me that God is no respecter of persons. It was you and your missus who taught me that I and his eyes, we are all equal. I was a slave. My husband was a slave. My children were slaves. And they were sold, every one of them. And after the last child was sold, I said, I will strike a blow for freedom. I had a plan, Reverend, but I failed. I was betrayed. But I tell you now, if I had succeeded, I would have slain you and your wife first to show them that followed me that I could sacrifice my love as I ordered them to sacrifice their hates to have justice for them. I would have been miserable for the rest of my life. I could not kill any human creature and feel any less. But in my heart, God tells me I was right. The reverend sagged in his chair. I was overpowered, he said. I could not answer her easily. Her honesty was so sincere, I forgot everything in my sympathy for her. I didn't know what I was doing. I lost my mind. I grasped her hand, I grasped her by the hand and said, Sibonia, let us pray. And we prayed long and earnestly. I prayed to God as our common father. I acknowledged that he would do justice, that those deemed the worst by us might be regarded the best by him. I prayed for God to forgive Sibi, and if we was wrong, to forgive the whites. I pressed Sabonia's hand when I was done and received the warm pressure of hers pressing in mine. And with a joy I never experienced before, I heard her earnest, solemn amen as I closed. The Reverend stood up. I ain't for this infernal institution no more, he said. Hang her if you want, but find someone else to minister to this town, for I am finished with it. And with that, he got up and left the room.
It's me.
standing in need of prayer. This book is uh, written by a man who does not believe. I mean, not me, but the person who's speaking in this book is a non-believer. And, uh, and he's, he stays a non-believer until John Brown and his men attack Harpers Ferry, which is America's biggest armory. You know, that's, that's when you find God usually, like, when you really need him or her, you know. Uh, you know, my, my great nightmare is, like, if I go to heaven and find out that God's, like, you know, I don't know, Rudy Giuliani or something. That would just, like, I would be so disappointed, you know. But he ain't, you know, or she ain't, like, you know. And not that, you know, not that Rudy's a bad guy. I'm you know, sure he's a nice guy. If he's a friend of yours, I'm sure he's a great guy. I don't know him personally. I just hope he's not God. <laughs> I really should write my speeches out before I get in front of people. I... In any case, uh, as John Brown and his men attacked Harper's Ferry, um, uh, Onion is part of that, that attacking group. Uh, and this is at a point where he actually finds God. He says, as we crossed the bridge, I had a clear sight of the Harpers Ferry from above, and by God, there were 300 militiamen down there, if there was one, milling around the gate and walls and more coming from town and the heights above it, cramming at the entrance, lying in the riverbank, all along the sides of the armory wall, all white men, not a single colored in sight. The armory walls were surrounded, and we was riding into death. I got lightheaded on God then. The devil flew off my back and the Lord latched himself to my heart. I said, Jesus, the blood. My heart felt like it was busting out the penitentiary. The words passed through, felt his spirit pass through me and my soul swelled up and everything about me, the trees, the bridge, the town became clear. I then and there decided if I ever cleared things up, I would tell the old man Brown what I felt clear with him about all the religious babbling I'd done, that, it, that all the teaching he did for me weren't for naught, and also clear with him about not saying nothing to him about the few assorted lies I had told to him along the way. I really decided to do that thing with him. I, th I thought if I had the chance, if I had the chance. Thy power throughout 
the universe displayed.
Do it again. It's the Showtime Brooks. How great. See, we talk about the Lord this afternoon. How great. Anybody know that is wonderful? How great. The Hallelujah. 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 Somebody lift God up. Lift Jesus up. He's worthy. He's worthy. I feel like some Robert Frost poetry right about now. I just feel... Trenton makes and the world takes. <laughs> the fervor of that, of that feeling is what propelled John Brown into history. At one point during his slavery fight, he loses badly. They burn his house. They burn all of his, his, soul, his whole settlement down. And they kill his son, Frederick. And his, uh, his other sons are ready to give up, give up the fight. And they say to him, we've done enough for the cause, Father. Stay with us and help us rebuild. The Federals will find the killer of our brother. They'll catch the killer and put him in jail and try him for that killing. The old man ignored his sons and mounted his horse, then stared out at the land before him. He seemed to be someplace else in his head. This is beautiful country, he said. He held out the feather from a good Lord bird. And this is a beautiful omen that my son Frederick left behind. It's a sign from God. He stuck it in his weather-beaten straw cap. It stuck straight up in the air. Father, you're not hearing me, his son Jason said. We are done. We are finished fighting. Stay with us and help us rebuild. The old man stretched his lips in a crazy fashion. It weren't a real smile, but as close as he could come. Never saw him out and out smile up to that point. It didn't fit his face. Stretching him wrinkles, horizontal, give him the impression of being plumb stark mad. Seemed like his peanut had poked out the shell all the way. He was soaked. His jacket and pants, which was always dotted full of holes, was a mass of torn and ripped clothing. On his back was a bit of blood where he'd taken a grape ball. He paid it no attention. I have only a short time to live, he said, and I will die fighting for this cause. There will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done. I will give those slaveholders something to think about. I will carry this war into Africa. Stay here if you want. If you're lucky, you'll find a cause worth dying for. Even the rebels have that. God's gonna set this world on fire. Oh, God's gonna set this world on fire one of these days. Hallelujah. God's gonna set this world on fire. Fire, gonna set this world on fire one of these days. Come on, y'all, put your hands together. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table one of these days. Hallelujah. I'm gonna sit at the welcome table. Gonna sit at the welcome table one of these
this world on fire one of these days, hallelujah. God's gonna set this world on fire. Gonna set this world on fire one of these days. Gonna set this world on fire one of these days. Gonna set this world on fire one of these days.
to Judgment Day. They say John Brown was a terrorist. That's a difficult thing to, to, to think about because if he were, if he were not a terrorist, we'd be reading this book. If Nelson Mandela were not a, Nelson Mandela were not a terrorist, would we be celebrating his life? I think history involves, it involves who's telling it and when. And I think we, what, what we're trying to do as people of, of, of literate means is that we're trying to learn how to talk about something that's very difficult. And race is a very difficult thing for us to talk about. Um, our chronic issue is that we have the inability to speak normally and naturally about things that we should be able to speak normally and naturally about. Most of my life, most of what I've done professionally has failed. And this book is one of my few successes. I spent my entire life watching my mother fail. Most of what she did did not work. But the things that did work worked on the basis of her belief that God was always watching you try to do the right thing. And so what we're trying to talk about here tonight and what we're trying to talk about as people of reason and discourse is that we have to try to do the right thing. And only when you, do the right, when you try to do the right thing individually does the collective inch forward that much more. So while John Brown was a knave and a, you know, a little bit psychotic, um, he was a great man that I admired greatly. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege to share his story with you uh, tonight. This uh, piece is a piece that was written about him and for him before he passed away. John Brown died, he lies a morning in the grave. He has captured Harper's Ferry with his 19 men so brave. He is fighting over Virginia till she trembled through and through. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Oh, glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. 
Thank you. Mr. James McBride. I gotta play. Y'all gotta inspire me to play. Come on, y'all. Uh, come on. Uh, right here. Uh, right there. I'll keep it there, y'all. Uh, right there. Uh, right there. Uh, come on. 
a little louder, yeah, right now. Uh, come on, come on, uh, come on. Here we go, break it down, y'all. by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.